The Greek name for the fourth book of the Bible is Arithmoi, from which we get our word arithmetic. The title of the book in the Latin is the word numeroi, from which we get our word numbers. Now I've got you squirming in your seat because you're worried that this is going to be a math lesson and you didn't do too well in math back in high school. But take heart, there is much more to the book of numbers than just numbers. In the Hebrew Bible, the book is more aptly entitled, In the Wilderness. And that's what the book describes, the children of Israel's wilderness wanderings. In fact, there's another title for the book. I like to call it, How to Turn a 15-Day Walk into 40 Years of Wandering. And Numbers reveals the reasons why the Hebrews failed to enter the land of promise, why they died in the desert. And this is why this book abounds with spiritual lessons for you and me. Spiritually speaking, we too have been delivered from an Egypt, an Egypt of sin. And we've been promised a place of rest and blessing, a spiritual place of wonderful blessing in Christ. But in order to enter in, we, just like the Hebrews, need to have faith. And if we yield to doubt and fear as they did, we too can end up dying in a wilderness of frustration. And so there are great lessons for us here in these pages. Now, Numbers begins with the Lord speaking to Moses in verse 2. Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, every male individually from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. Recently, there have been some billboards popping up across the United States, and they consist of quotations that have been attributed to God. Here are a few examples. Let's meet at my house Sunday before the game. Sign God. What part of thou shalt not didn't you understand? Here's another one. We need to talk. <laughs> Loved the wedding, invite me to the marriage. That love thy neighbor thing, I'm in it. Signed, God. Big Bang Theory? You've got to be kidding. My way is the highway. <laughs> There's another one that says, need directions? Here's another one. You think it's hot here? <laughs> Have you read my number one bestseller? There will be a test. Signed, God. Do you have any idea where you're going? How's that if you're motoring down the road and you look up and see that one? Signed, God. One more. Don't make me come down there. <laughs> signed, God. All these quotations are signed, God. But there's one quotation that I think fits the book of Numbers. It says... I love you, and you, and you, and you, and dot, dot, dot. Signed, God. You see, while in bondage in, in Egypt, the Hebrews were a nameless, 
innumerable band of slaves. In Egypt, the individual was nameless and expendable. But now the Hebrews belong to God. They're his people. And every person matters to God. And thus, God orders a census to make that point to the children of Israel. It was Augustine who said, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. Nobody gets lost in the crowd with God. Don't misunderstand. You are more than a number to God. Certainly you are numbered among his people, but you are more than a number. He knows your name. He knows everything there is about you. I love the saying, whenever God counts people, it means that people count to God. And so the Lord issues a census. Now, let me add one caution. When God numbers people, it's a good thing. But often when man numbers people, it can lead to sin. Numbering implies ownership. You know, you number only what belongs to you. If I saw you numbering my stuff, I would be suspicious. That's why in 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David is judged for taking a census. He wants to know the extent of his dominion. He has forgotten that his kingdom belongs to God. That David's subjects are in reality God's subjects. Counting sheep may be a good way to get to sleep at night, but it's also a good way for a church to fall asleep spiritually. I've known churches and individuals who've gotten off track when they became preoccupied with numbers. In the beginning, the goal of the church was to reach more people, but over time, it deteriorated into produce more numbers. For churches and for individuals, numerical success can become a point of pride. Big crowds. For that matter, big bank accounts. Lots of anything can cause us to boast in our own prowess. We forget our prosperity is the result of God's grace, not our ingenuity. The lesson for us is it's okay for a church to take a census or a businessman to do an inventory just as long as we're doing it, we're counting for the right reasons. For a church, maintaining a directory enables us to better communicate and minister, but we should always check our motive. Is it to God or is it to gloat? In verse 3, Moses takes a leader from each of the 12 tribes and they count the people. And according to chapter 2, verse 46, the total men at least 20 years of age was 603,550. That means that when you add the women and children, 2 to 3 million people marched out of Egypt up to Kadesh Barnea with Moses. In chapter 2, verse 2, we're told that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Each tribe was assigned a specific spot around the tabernacle where they could pitch their tents. 
Now, three tribes camped on each of the four sides of the tabernacle. On the east, Judah camped closest to the tabernacle. Then just beyond Judah was Issachar. Then beyond Issachar was Zebulun. On the south, there was Reuben. Then Simeon and then Gad. The west side story was Ephraim, Manasseh, and then Benjamin. And to the north camped Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And from a practical standpoint, the arrangement of the camp was strategic. It maximized space. It made for a ring of protection around the tabernacle. And when it came time to break camp and to march, this order made for a smooth and an easy progression in mobility. It also put God at the heart of the nation. At the center of the camp was the tabernacle. And the national life of Israel was intended to center around the worship of God. That's God's design for us. He wants the worship of God to be the center and hub of all that goes on in our lives as well. There were practical reasons behind the arrangement of the camp. But from a spiritual standpoint, we can see another strategy behind God's instructions. The tabernacle was the hub. And out from the tabernacle on all four sides, three tribes camped. It's interesting what the camp of Israel looked like from heaven. From an aerial view, the view that you have up on the overhead, the tribes of Israel camped in the shape of a cross. And whenever God looked down on the children of Israel, he saw a reminder of the means by which he would redeem those same people. The event of which all their sacrifices spoke, the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Verse 2 also tells us that each of the twelve tribes camped under the banner of the four lead tribes on each side of the tabernacle. The banner was the coat of arms or the insignia of the tribes. We know that the insignia for Judah was a lion. For Reuben, it was a man. For Ephraim, it was an ox. And for Dan, it was an eagle. And this is fascinating because there peering at the presence of God at the tabernacle in the heart of the camp were four faces. That of a lion, that of a man, that of an ox, and that of an eagle. It's interesting. When we get a chance in Scripture to peer into the throne room of God, passages like Ezekiel chapter 1, Revelation chapter 4, we always find there four living creatures or angels And each of them has four faces. And guess what they are? The face of a lion, the face of a man, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. It seems that the camp of Israel was also a type of God's throne room in heaven. In chapter 3, we learn that the high priest, Aaron, had two sons to help him in the tabernacle, Ithamar and Eleazar. But the job was too big for just three people, so God set aside the tribe of Levi to assist in the service of the tabernacle. 
Earlier, God had told the Hebrews that he wanted them to dedicate their firstborn, the firstborn of every family to him. This was a thank you to God for saving the firstborn while they were in Egypt. But in chapter 3, God tells them that instead of the firstborn, he wants to accept the 22,000 Levites as a sacrifice, as a substitute for the firstborn. And so this one tribe, the tribe of Levi, is specially dedicated to the service of the tabernacle. Now, the Levites consisted of three families, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And their duties are described in chapter 4. The Gershonites carried the tabernacle fabrics, the Kohathites, the furniture, and the Merarites, the boards or the frame. And so you've got the fabrics, the furniture, and the frame. And each of the three families took care of those three categories of items. The priests did the packing, and then the Levites would do the transporting. They were sort of the holy moving crew. Chapter 10 describes how the Hebrews broke camp and marched. The tribes on the east went first followed by Gershon and Merari with the fabric and frame of the tabernacle. Next came the tribes that were camped on the south, after which came the Kohathites carrying the tabernacle furniture. Then the other six tribes followed in the rear. What this meant was that when the Hebrews set up camp, the frame and the fabric of the tabernacle arrived before the furniture. So the priests had time to put up the tabernacle, the frame, put the fabric on top, and then about the time they were finished, then the furniture's arriving and it can go right into the tabernacle. And so it was just a beautiful, smooth way that God had of setting up the camp and taking down the camp. All of this movement, as well as all the details in the book of Numbers, speaks to me of the value that God places on organization. Guys, throughout the Bible, God places a premium on the effective utilization of our time and our resources. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, he first arranged the people in groups of 50 and 100. He organized. Then, as he broke the bread, he didn't distribute it himself. He gave it to the disciples and let them serve the people. Jesus was good at organization and delegation. I run into believers in Jesus who are opponents of what they call organized religion. How many people have you ever talked to who say, I'm against organized religion? They assume that the more organized you are, the less spiritual you will be. And I admit, it's possible to organize out the work of the Holy Spirit. I've seen it done. Church leaders become so dependent on the management of the ministry that they don't allow room for God to work. They end up trusting in the flesh and in their techniques and in their sophisticated approaches rather than in the work of the Holy Spirit. You can organize out the work of the Holy Spirit, but... You really can't go through the book of Numbers without concluding that the worship of God was intended by God to be organized. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, the Lord commands the church, let all things be done decently and in order. He wants us to be organized and mobilized and open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't think it's more spiritual to meet together without a plan and purpose. Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, calls Israel the army of the Lord. And just as you and I, Just as they were armies of soldiers in the army of Israel, you and I are soldiers in the army of Christ. We're soldiers for the Lord. And hey, no army goes into battle without a plan, without a strategy, without intense organization. Too many churches have been weakened because of a lack of organized religion, organization in the church. No one knows their roles. No one knows their duties. They come up to volunteer their time and it gets wasted. There's a duplication of effort. People don't stay committed to that kind of church for very long. When ministry is done sloppily, it doesn't give God the glory that He deserves. God deserves excellence in ministry. And we should always do our best when we serve the Lord. It's been said... Don't agonize, organize. And I agree. That's a message for the church. You remember in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that of leading or spiritual management. And we need people in the church with this vital spiritual endowment. Guys, all life has structure. Take away the skeleton from your body And there'll be nothing on which the organs can hang. Your skin will just crumple up in a bag of goo. Your life will not be very meaningful. And spiritual life also needs structure and organization for you to go somewhere, for you to do something, for you to count for God's kingdom. In chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, We're told that real repentance involves an attempt at restitution. If you sin against another person, the law of Moses says that you should pay for the damages plus an additional 20%. There's a punitive element there. A glib apology is not enough. If you harm someone, you may need to make an attempt at restoring what you've damaged. This is also true for New Testament believers as well. When Jesus forgave Zacchaeus, the tax collector, do you remember what his response was? Immediately, he went out to repay fourfold what he had cheated. Isn't it interesting? The law required you pay back plus 20%. But the love of Jesus caused Zacchaeus to pay back and add 400%. That's the powerful motivator that we have in Christ. What's more powerful? What's the stronger motivator, the law or the love of Jesus? Obviously, it's the love of Jesus. And if we're truly sorry for our sin, we'll seek to restore the damage that we've done the best that we can. Chapter 5 also contains an interesting ritual for a wife 
who is accused of adultery by her husband. The accused came before the priest who took dirt from the floor of the tabernacle and he mixed it with water. Then he put the woman under an oath and he wrote down the curses that would come upon her if she was guilty. Then he would take and scrape the ink off the parchment and add that to the mixture of dirt and water. Then he would have the woman drink the potion. And we're told that if her belly swelled and her thigh rotted, she was guilty. If it didn't, she was innocent. This is a bizarre ritual. And I am sure that it was an embarrassing ordeal for a woman. You could just be married to a highly jealous man. And without warrant, you could become subject to this kind of humiliation. Now remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 tells us, All these things happened. All these things that happened to Israel were examples to us. And they were written for our admonition. In other words, swelling bellies and rotting thighs. This ritual here in chapter 5 conveys an important spiritual lesson for you and for me. I just have no idea what it is. (laughs) I have no idea what this means for us today. But I'm going to let you pray about it, and I'm sure the Lord will give you insight, the insight that I lack. I'm sure one thing, it deterred flirting. (laughs) I mean, you didn't want to give your husband any idea, any possible thought that you might be cheating on him. But after that, your guess is as good as mine as to what this means. The only other observation that I can make is that here the tabernacle dirt is used to condemn an adulterous woman. But in the New Testament, Jesus used the dirt on the floor of the temple to forgive and set free an adulterous woman. In John chapter 8, verse 6, Jesus wrote in the dirt, Let him who has not sinned, cast the first stone. You remember the story. Now chapter 6 conveys another ritual, and here the lesson is much clearer than in chapter 5. The vow of the Nazarite was a Jewish rite with extreme spiritual significance. The word Nazir means to set apart. And the vow of the Nazarite was a special act of devotion to God. There were two kinds of Nazarites. There were the temporary Nazarites and there were the perpetual Nazarites. You remember there were three lifetime Nazarites mentioned in Scripture. You remember who they were? Samuel, Samson, at least he broke it at the end. And then the other one was John the Baptist. 
People get Jesus confused. He was not a Nazarite. He was called the Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. But he was not a Nazarite. That's a person who took this special vow. Now, the Nazarite agreed for the duration of his vow to abstain from three contacts. The fruit of the vine, no wine, no grapes. No razor was to touch his head. That meant that his hair would always look knotty and nappy and unkept. And then third, he could not touch anything that was dead. Now, if we jumped ahead to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, there the Lord sums up for us the world system that opposes the values of God. I like to call it the World Wide Web. Here's how he describes it. For all that is in the world, here's three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those are the world's values. Summed up in three statements. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is how the world without God operates. Think of it this way, the lust of the flesh, the desire to feel great. The lust of the eyes, the desire to look great. And the pride of life, the desire to be great. Isn't that how the world, isn't that how the world is, where the world is motivated? They want to feel great. They want to look great. They want to be great. Sprite tells us, obey your thirst. Feel great, man. Obey your thirst. But wait a minute. What about obeying God? Image is everything. Man, you need to look great. But wait, what about character? What about inner beauty? Everybody wants to be great. Even McDonald's tells you, you deserve a break today. We all deserve a break, all right. (laughs) But a painful break. The vow of the Nazarite was the antithesis to the values of the world. In other words, the Nazarite was a walking billboard for the values of God. He lived without the fruit of the vine. He didn't touch the sensual, the the worldly pleasures, the wine, the grapes. His joy was derived from spiritual sources, not physical sources. His identity was based not on external beauty, but internal beauty. He, He couldn't get a haircut. His hair was all knotty and nappy and messy and greasy. And You looked at me and said, man, that guy needs a haircut. Well, he did. But that was the point. He, he was saying beauty is internal, not external. And then the third part of his vow, he couldn't touch anything that was dead. In other words, his ambitions were for eternal glory, not temporal glory. You and I need to be spiritual Nazarites. We need to be walking advertisements for the values of God. We need to demonstrate to the world around us that real life is found in the spiritual, not the physical. In the internal, not the external. And in the eternal, not the temporal. 
Write those down. This is how we should live. Seeking real pleasure, spiritual pleasure, not physical pleasure. Internal beauty, not external beauty. And eternal ambition, not temporal ambition. In chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, the Lord gives Moses a blessing that Aaron the priest is to speak over the people. Before or after a sacred assembly, at the close of the evening and morning sacrifices, at a time of national emergency, whenever the high priest addressed the people of God, this is how he is to greet them and dismiss them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. God wanted His people to always be reminded that His intention toward them was to bless and keep. It was to be gracious. That God was always smiling on them. That God wanted to give them peace. And that's why whenever they gathered, the priest was to utter this blessing over the people. God wants us to be assured, as we talked about this morning, that he is a blesser, not a bouncer. (laughs) In chapter 7, Moses erects and then dedicates the tabernacle. And afterwards, each of the twelve tribes and their leaders bring an identical offering to the Lord. In chapter 8, Aaron is told to position the lampstand. You remember, the only light allowed in the tabernacle was the light of the menorah, or the seven-branch lampstand. But the light is useless unless it is positioned so that it can shine. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, we see another seven-branch lampstand. But this time it's symbolic of the church. You and I are lights in the dark world in which we live. In Matthew 5 verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God wants you to shine. But hey, there are times when you need to be repositioned so that you can shine brighter and so that you can shine in places where it's needed. This is the job of our high priest, Jesus Christ. He is in charge of positioning us and repositioning us so that the light can shine. He moves us into a new position at work. Or he causes our path to cross with a new group of people. Or he rearranges schedules so that we're in a different place at a different time. This is all the high priest's way of repositioning the lamp so that it'll shine the brightest and to those who need it most. The priest's job was to reposition the lamp. In the latter half of chapter 8, the Levites are dedicated for service. And in chapter 9... The Hebrews celebrate their second Passover. The first Passover, remember, took place in Egypt, where death passed over, where the blood had been applied. And now they're commemorating again God's deliverance, their liberty. They're celebrating the second Passover, and the Hebrews have celebrated the Passover every year since for the last 3,400 years. And 43 years. 
At the end of chapter 9, we're again told about the cloud and the fire. After the tabernacle was dedicated, a cloud of glory hovered over the main tent. The glory of God had the appearance in the daytime of a cloud and at night a column of fire. And this manifestation of God's glory is what guided them for the next 40 years. When the cloud moved, they followed. When the cloud stayed, they stayed put. You know, this is how we should live our lives. It's really just that simple. Weigh the facts if you want. Examine the situation if need be. Consult the experts and the counselors. But the bottom line is, what's God saying about the situation? If God says move, move. If God says stay, stay. There's a great insight in verse 22. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. In other words, the Hebrews were willing to wait two days, a month, a year if necessary, until they knew for sure that God was ready to move. Hey, we need the same attitude. What's time to God? (laughs) He's got plenty of it. God is never in a hurry. Let's not move until we know that God is ready to move. Where would you want to go without God anyway? Is what I want to know. In chapter 10, the Lord tells Moses to make two silver trumpets. And the priests will use these trumpets to signal the people... There's a sound to break camp. There's a sound to call a sacred assembly. There's a sound to prepare for battle. There's a sound to summon the leaders. There's a sound to initiate a feast. The silver trumpets were used as sort of an inner office communication system for the Hebrews. The first time they're used is in the latter half of chapter 10. Thirteen months after leaving Egypt. The Hebrews are now ready to enter the land of promise. A band of slaves has now been transformed into a nation. They've been given God's law. They've been instructed in worship. They've been organized, assured of God's provision. And now they're ready to move. And it should take about 15 days to reach Canaan. Instead, hmm. It takes them 40 years. Someone asked me the other day if I knew how to get to the football field up in Norcross. They didn't know that I'm lousy with directions. And I said to the guy, I said, hey man, I can tell you how to get to heaven. But anywhere else, you need to see my wife. (laughs) I can get lost from church to home. I've done it. (laughs) But even I would have a difficult time turning a two-week walk into 40 years of wandering. There must have been something going on other than a bad sense of direction. We start to see the problem in chapter 11, verse 1. 
There we're told, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. Now, the odds of being struck by lightning are one in 1.9 million. That is, unless you're grumbling and complaining about the provision of the Lord. Then the odds increase dramatically. Just look at what happens next. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses. And when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. God had mercy on the malcontents. But if you want to get burned, just keep up your disgruntled attitude. After the fiery judgment... You would think that the people would stop their complaints. (laughs) But not so. Verse 4 tells us, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. And so the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Uh, Yeah, manna. Now remember, this was the miraculous food that God had provided them. Every morning they woke up and they went out and, and the manna was on the ground. This was the bread from heaven. This was the original wonder bread. It came from God, the world's first health food. If you had taken one wafer of that manna, put it under a microscope, examined its nutritional content, it would have had 100% of the USDA daily requirements in that little wafer of manna. God made it. You know it was good. We're told, now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color like the color of delium. It was grainy and it was white, in other words. And the people went about and gathered it, ground it on milled stones, or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans, and made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. Evidently, the menu had grown old. They'd been eating manna now for about 13 months. And they wanted a little little variety in their diet. This was miraculous manna, but I suppose that even miracles can get monotonous. Each morning they would go out and they would gather the manna and they would grumble. Mm -hmm. The same old stuff every morning. What can you do with this? There's only so much I can do with manna, manna bagels, manna burgers, manna casserole, manna cookies, manna soup, manna sandwiches, manna waffles. God, give us a break. I am tired of manna, manna, manna. How about some meat and potatoes, God? That's what they were saying. And God has such a sense of humor. Moses tells the grumblers, if it's meat you want, then it's meat you're going to get. And look what he says in verse 18. It's so funny. The Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, 
nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Until it comes out your snout. You're going to eat meat until you hate the taste of quail. You want meat? God's going to give you meat. In verse 31, God brings the quail. And it says they were about two cubits. Cubits 18 inches, so it was about 36 inches or a yard above the surface of the ground. That probably means that they flew in low so that the Hebrews could swat them out of the air with their baseball bats. And we know they they hit the quail with their baseball bats because look what verse 32 tells us. It says, He who gathered least gathered ten homers. So you know they were using baseball bats. Ten homers. (laughs) A homer was a dry measurement of about a bushel. Now we're told in verse 32 that the people swatted quail nonstop for 36 straight hours. You know what that means? That means they were greedy. They were greedy. And God stopped their insatiable craving with a plague. Complaining, grumbling, discontented. Guys, Satan loves to breed discontent. He wants to make you unhappy with God's provision. All's fine with the Lord's manna until the enemy plants the suggestion in your head if you if only you were driving that new car if only you had married her instead of the person you married if only you could have that job or you could move to another town and get out of this place where you're living hey this is how the advertising industry works It works on breeding discontent. I'll be perfectly happy with my life. And I'll watch television for an hour and I'll I'll walk away saying, I didn't know I was so unhappy. Man, I'm depressed. I've been bombarded for an hour with what I don't have. Didn't know I didn't have that. Didn't know I needed that. Now I need new toothpaste. I need need new everything. It reminds me of the two tombstones that sat side by side. The first one read, she died of want for things. The second one read, he died trying to give them to her. (laughs) Never content. I read where a hundred years ago, the average man had 70 wants. Whereas today, his grandson has 500 wants. We live in the gimme generation. Everyone wants more and more and more. No one is content with what God has given them. Guys, real faith is learning to be content with God's provision. 
Matthew 6 verse 8 tells us, Your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Do you believe that God knows what you need? If so, why can't you be content with what He's given? I believe that God deliberately made the manna a little bland tasting. Just to remind the people that their real fulfillment came not from satisfying their physical hunger, but by satisfying their spiritual hunger. Real contentment is found spiritually, not physically. Jesus is the bread of life. He alone can satisfy our soul. He alone brings contentment. This round of grumbling was about more than Moses could bear. And he says in verse 14, I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. Moses needs help. And God provides it in verse 16. God tells Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. The problem in leadership is finding people who will share the burden. You know, it's pretty easy to find warm bodies to whom you can delegate certain tasks and assignments. But it's harder to find people who are willing to assume responsibility. And this was what Moses was looking for. Moses needed more than just glorified gophers. He needed men who were willing to think the way he thinks, care the way he cares, sacrifice for the work of God the way he sacrificed. Moses needed men who would see the big picture, who would catch the vision, who would help shoulder the responsibility. And God knows that that requires a work of the Holy Spirit. It's one thing for a person to agree to fill a spot on a schedule. But for a man or a woman to step into the circle of responsibility, it requires a deeper work, a work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Moses gathered all but two of the 70 elders, and they stood before the tabernacle. And just as God promised, the power of the Spirit was poured out upon them. But verse 26 tells us, Two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So... Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Now, Joshua was appalled that Eldad and Medad were filled with the Holy Spirit while still in the camp. This was supposed to happen there before the tabernacle, not among the common people out in the camp. In other words, here was his concern. What if everyone thinks... What if the common person thinks that they can receive supernatural power and spiritual gifts? We want the people to know and recognize that this is only for an elite few, not for the common person. 
I love, though, Moses' response. Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Rather than view the power of the Holy Spirit as the exclusive property of an elite few, Moses longed for the day when all God's people would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Hey, Moses was way ahead of his time. In the Old Testament, select people at select times were empowered by the Spirit. But today, all of us, all of us can be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Numbers 12 verse 3 makes an interesting statement. Now the man Moses was very humble more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Isn't that amazing? No one had more authority among men or clout with God than Moses. And yet he was considered the most humble man on the earth. I think Moses never forgot where he came from. He never forgot that without God, he was a failed deliverer. Without God, he was nothing but a simple shepherd. Moses had no agenda of his own. His sole desire was to glorify God. And this was why he was so reluctant to defend himself. And God had to take up his defense. Verse 1 of chapter 12 tells us, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. His own brother and sister spoke against him. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And so they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. The Hebrews grumbled about the menu. In the next chapter, they're going to grumble about the mission. And here they grumble about the messenger. Miriam and Aaron question their own brother's authority. God calls them out in verse 6. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? (laughs) Talking about a good defense. How would you like for God to say that about you? Wow. Now what constituted their complaint against Moses? We're really not sure. Verse 1 implies that it had something to do with his marriage to an Ethiopian woman. And it could be that Miriam and Aaron were guilty of racial prejudice. They objected to Moses marrying a black woman. Racial racial prejudice is awful. And it needs to be busted wherever it appears. Verse 10 says, And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Moses intercedes for his sister. But the point gets made. Racial prejudice and bigotry is a leprous spot on the body of Christ when it exists within the church. 
But you know, the church is threatened by all kinds of prejudice and pettiness. We've had people in our church get mad at me and Kathy and leave the church because we didn't say hello to them on a Sunday morning. We had a person walk out one Sunday because they looked up and saw me wearing blue jeans. And they said they could never go to a church where the pastor wears blue jeans. Prejudice. Pettiness. Hey, it's your duty to criticize a church leader when he violates scripture or when he acts immorally or when he behaves unethically. But when it's just a personal preference, you need to support him. Don't criticize him. If you've got a personal prejudice, then just get over it. We need to pull together. We need to get behind our leaders. And we need to be the church that God intends for us to be. That's what Israel learned there in the wilderness. In chapter 13, the Hebrews arrive on the outskirts of the promised land. And they camp at the border town of Kadesh. And Moses sends 12 spies to scope out the land. They're gone for 40 days. And when they return... They come back and in essence they say, well, we got some good news and some bad news. (laughs) First the good news, verse 27, it truly flows with milk and honey. They even bring back clusters of huge juicy grapes. But then comes the bad news, verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, drop down to verse 33, and we find that the descendants of Anak are called giants. And it's the same Hebrew word that we found back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, Nephilim. The word that was used to describe the offspring of the sons of God who married the daughters of men. And I believe the Nephilim were humans sired by fallen angels or demons, a race of freaks or mutant humanoids, you might call them. This was the reason that God flooded the world. He wanted to save humanity from this sort of evil contamination. And apparently... It was not as rampant after the flood as it was before the flood, but the evil practice still occurred, and it had occurred among the pagan and idolatrous Canaanites because they found examples of these Nephilim in their land. After the Hebrews take possession of the land, Joshua, in chapter 11, verse 22, tells us that these giants settled in three Philistine cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And do you remember who came from Gath? All nine foot nine inches of him. The giant named Goliath was from Gath. Only two of the twelve spies encouraged the Hebrews to take the land. Caleb pipes up in verse 30. Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the other ten poured water on his fire. 
They say in verse 31, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And in Numbers 14, verse 2, we're told what happens next. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What brave and faith-filled men. But in the end, The Hebrews feared the obstacles more than they feared the Lord. That's my question for you tonight. Do you fear the obstacles more than you fear the Lord? Their chronic complaining was really just a smokescreen for a greater evil. It was their lack of faith. It's been said... Our problem is not the greatness of our troubles, but the littleness of our spirits or of our faith. Only Joshua and Caleb focused on the opportunities rather than the obstacles. Only these two men saw the grapes rather than the giants. Hey, when we're facing the giants, we need to fix our eyes on God. And focus only on Him. This is what David did when he faced that later son of Anak. The Israelite army looked at Goliath and they said, Man, he's too big to hit. David looked at him and said, He's too big to miss. (laughs) Guys, let's go forward in faith. Let's stop grumbling about the obstacles when God has given us opportunity to trust Him and see His hand at work. God will win the victory if we'll just follow Him and go forward in faith. It's sad how the Hebrews respond after Caleb's passionate plea to trust the Lord. Verse 10 says, And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Their unbelief is unashamed. And it angers God. And again, God threatens to wipe out the whole nation and start over. But once more, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. God's punishment, though, is severe enough. Only two adults that exited Egypt will be allowed to enter Canaan. Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that brought back the good report. The rest will die in the wilderness. 
Look what God says in verses 22 and 23. He says, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. It took ten wonders to win their release from Egypt. It takes ten blunders to seal their doom in the desert. It's interesting, the fact that God had a number indicates that there is a limit to His patience. In chapter 14, verses 31 and 32, God speaks of the irony that will take place. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. How's that for ironic, poetic justice, if you will? Verse 34 explains why the 40 years. According to the number of the days in which you spot out the land, 40 days For each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. This is how a two-week fun run turned into a forty-year death march. Hey, the longest detour you will ever take is to go down the fork of unbelief. Doubt and disobedience will always make your path harder and longer. Doubt and disobedience will always create a detour. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When Moses tells the Hebrews God's verdict, oh, they admit their sin, all right. And they muster an attack. But it's too little too late. You see, God's offers aren't forever. The verdict gets cast. The opportunity is missed. And if they go now, they go alone. God won't be with them, and that's what happens. The victory that God promises us over our enemies... The victory over sin and over lust and over worry and over temptation is not the result of our resolve. Yeah, we can do it. No, it's not the result of our resolve. I don't care how determined you are. If you go alone, as Moses said, this will not succeed. Victory comes only when faith transforms our meager efforts into a conduit that brings into our life and our situation the presence and the power of God. That's when victory comes. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you receive the victory.